Good morning, ladies. It's been our custom to begin our lecture usually with a joke, but today I'd like to share a true story. Uh, it might as well be a joke. I've always liked history, and I enjoy reading about it, but it seems that in our day and time, even our finest schools have neglected the thought of even teaching it, and, and a lot of times they falsified history. One of my favorite reporters has made a, a business about getting about some college campuses and interviewing young students. Now, these aren't just any other schools. These are very prestigious Ivy League schools that he was going to. He would stop the students on the campus and ask them just simple questions about history and holidays and where, how they came about. So here are some of the questions and the answers that were given. Uh, number one, who won the Civil War? The answer, Japan. Number two, who ran for president against Roosevelt during World War II? The answer, Adolf Hitler. Number three, this was to, having to do with the 4th of July. When did America gain her independence from the British? One student answered, 1982. I had not realized we'd been under the Queen that long, but anyway. As to Easter, he asked, is the Easter Bunny in the Old Testament or the New Testament? The student thought about it for a minute and answered the Old Testament. I spent all night looking for it and couldn't find it. So there you have it, education at its finest. And these parents are probably paying up to $50,000 for this education. And these are the answers we're getting. And I say this to lead up to the fact that history is very important. Why? Because history and scripture go together. Just as movies have previews, so has history. It is a good thing to know something of history because our God is the God who created history, both biblical, biblical accounts as well as those things in the world. He created time, thus he created all that happens in time. If you look at the word history and break it in half, it's his story, history. In this chapter, we will see world history intersect with scripture so perfectly. It is fascinating to see how they are woven together by a perfect God who is sovereign over all and by whose hand all things are ordained to happen. Yet those who take part in the story of his history are fully culpable of whatever they do, fully responsible for their actions, even though they are fulfilling the predetermined plan of God. Now, prophecy is usually a very exciting subject to most of us who are reading it in our day and time, but the prophets of old didn't see it that way. To them, prophecy involved kind of a bittersweet message because it always involved judgment and then maybe a happy ending, but there was always judgment involved. And it was a hard message often for them to swallow. They were living in it. It was a heavy burden for them to hear. We're going to see a real shift in chapter 9 from um, the earlier chapters, which were mostly about visions, we're going to now see some prophecy fulfilled through history. The main message in Zechariah is that God is not finished with Israel. He has a wonderful future in store for them, and all of his promises to them will be fulfilled in their time. But right now, they're in the midst of rebuilding the temple during Zechariah's time, and God is in the midst of giving them glimpses of what's to come. This is the exciting part of where history intersects with the Bible. Each section in this chapter will show what will happen to Israel both then and in the future. The prophet Daniel prophesied the nations that would come to rule over Israel, 
Daniel, Zechariah, and Revelation fit like a glove when studied together. They are so prophetically in sync. Daniel describes how four major Gentile empires would one, one day come to rule over Israel. Babylon would take Israel captive and carry her away, which actually happened in, Daniel, in uh, Daniel's time. Then Daniel said the Medo-Persia Empire would come to take over Israel and rule. Well, that's what happened here in Zechariah's time. It was the Persian king Darius that allowed the exiles to return from Babylonian captivity to start the building of the temple in the first place. Then da Daniel sees into the future, predicting the Greek Empire, which would one day come to take them over, and then eventually the Roman Empire, which was ruling during New Testament times when Jesus walked the earth. Zechariah himself is now getting this same prophecy of future Gentile rule, just as Daniel had. So let's begin. Verse 1 through 6 of chapter 9. The burden of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, with Damascus as its resting place. And the eyes of all men, especially the tribes of Israel, are towards the Lord. And Hamath also, which borders on it. Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. For Tyre had built herself a fortress. She piled up silver like dust and gold like the mud of the streets. But the Lord will dispose of her and cast her into the wealth of the sea. She will be consumed with fire. Ascalon will see it and be afraid. Gaza too will writhe in pain. And Ekron, for her expectation, has been confounded. Moreover, the king, of per uh, the king will perish from Gaza and Ascalon will not be inhabited. A mongrel race will dwell in Ashdod and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. Ezekiel chapters 25 through 28 record this whole thing in detail about Tyre. It's a great thing to read because he just goes right through it and explains why God hated Tyre so much. And, and everything that Ezekiel prophesied came to pass and that was much earlier than this time period. Verse 1 says, it was the burden of the Lord spoken to Zechariah. The word burden really carries with it the meaning of judgment. And God's judgment in this prophecy is directed mainly towards the city of Tyre. Tyre was a very powerful, a very rich, but a very evil city. Ezekiel 28 mentions Tyre as being full of pride and is compared to being satanically ruled. It's compared actually to Satan. Ezekiel, hundreds of years prior, had prophesied that a ruthless tyrant would cut Tyre down in the middle of the sea. This only goes to show that the activity of world powers, although satanically inspired, are still always under God's sovereign control. Tyre is where Lebanon is today, on the Mediterranean Sea. Initially, Babylon had conquered the city of Tyre. But some of those who survived the destruction moved the city about a half a mile into the sea. It became an island fortress. It had a great navy. It had a 150-foot wall around it. So now they began to become proud again and claim that, well, we'll never be conquered again. And they were almost right. One king tried for five years and failed. The next king tried for 13 years and failed. But as we all know, three times is a charm. One very infamous man came along and took the city in a mere seven months. How he did it was remarkable. He took the rubble of the originally destroyed city on the mainland by the ba Babylonians and used the rocks to build a causeway 
to the island, marched in, took the city, and burned it into the sea, just as predicted. Now, the Bible doesn't come out and specifically name who this person is, but history has proven out God's word to be true. This man was none other than Alexander the Great, whom we've all learned about and read about in our history books. This man would be used by God as a tool of judgment. How profound it is that history intersects with prophecy so perfectly. Just to give a little background on Alexander, he exceeded the norm. He was not a normal person. He was an accomplished equestrian by age 12, taming wild stallions. He was tutored under the Greek philosopher Aristotle at age 16, and after his father's assassination, he succeeded the throne at 19 years old, inheriting a very strong kingdom and a very large army. But his weakness was that he enjoyed drinking parties from a very young age. He was very short-tempered and did not take no for an answer very easily. He claimed that his father was the Greek god Zeus, and thus he was endowed with supernatural powers. He immediately began a series of campaigns to conquer the nations, which would last for 10 years. Starting in 333 BC, Alexander moved from north to south, from Syria to Egypt, leaving nothing in his wake. No other man has conquered so many so quickly with such few soldiers as he did. Even Daniel describes the empire of Alexander the Great as a leopard because of how fast leopards can run. So see you have it here, the fast and furious conqueror Alexander. But we're not here to pontificate about Alexander the Great, but rather to show how great our God is when he can use even a highly skilled evil ruler like Alexander to accomplish his own purposes. Verse 4 says, Behold, the Lord will dispose her and cast her into the sea, speaking of Tyre, and consume her with fire. This verse explains that it really wasn't Alexander who did the conquering, but God who was using Alexander as his instrument of judgment. It says, Behold, the Lord will. God was willing to use him to accomplish his purpose and plan in history to fulfill prophecy. Tyre would be brought down, and God would use Alexander to do it. God can use the wicked to do anything he wishes, yet they have no idea it's not in them that they're doing it. Alexander was a wicked man. He eventually died at the age of 33. God cut, cut him down in the prime of life. He died of alcohol poisoning, no wonder, since he had started so young. So a good example, or a good principle here, is that no matter how evil a country is, today we look at things like North Korea, Russia, Iran, Iraq, and we worry all about it when we hear things on the news, but God is actually behind the scenes of all international events, all international power, be it good or evil, so we need not to worry about what we hear. God's got it. Verse 7, And I will remove their blood from their mouth and their detestable things from between their teeth. Then they also will be a remnant for our God and be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron like a Jebusite. These nations were evil nations. When God speaks of removing the blood and detestable from between their teeth, he's most likely referring to their eating of animal and even perhaps human sacrifices with their blood still within them to their idolatrous God. The Lord would remove the blood these pagans ate from their mouths. Drinking blood and eating unclean food was a normal part of Philistine pagan practice and worship, but was highly forbidden by God for Israel. The remnant he speaks of is possibly some of the Philistines 
who even chose to uh, turn to the Lord, which is a good thing. Verse 8, but I, God, will camp around my house because of an army, because of him who passes by and him who returns. What he means by his house is God's house, God's temple. Now the house they were building in Zechariah's day was the temple, of course, but God's house always resided in Israel. And God would not allow Israel to be touched by anyone if he didn't want it to be. History records exactly what happened as Alexander the Great raced from north to south, stopping at Jerusalem, fully intending on destroying them, but for some reason he didn't bother. He had bigger and better things on his mind, I guess. He continued south on his path of destruction, and on his way back home again, he was fully intending on finishing Israel off for good. Now, all this time, the people in Israel were praying because they knew it would only be a matter of time before Alexander would be back because that was the route for Alexander to get back home. Now, we don't know for sure the truth of this story. Um, it's not in Scripture. But the great historian Josephus records a dream the high priest supposedly had. The high priest had a dream from God that he was to dress in his high priestly garments with his headdress and to gather all the other priests with him in their white robes and go out and meet Alexander the Great when he heads back north towards Jerusalem on his way home. As Alexander approached Jerusalem, he sees the high priest in his garment and all the priests dressed in white robes heading out to meet him. When Alexander saw this, he bowed down and tells the high priest that he also had a dream of a procession of men dressed in a white robe and many white robes coming out to meet him outside the city. This spooked him. So he left the city in peace. Now, we all know he didn't do this because he was a nice guy. God evidently orchestrated this whole thing in order to supernaturally protect his people Israel. Now, verse 8 splits in half. 8a is what I just spoke about, but and that has already been fulfilled, but 8b is not, because 8b says it looks forward to the future of Israel, because it says, and no oppressor will pass over them anymore, for now I have seen with my eyes. Well, we know this has to be future, because Israel's been oppressed many times since Zechariah's time. This flipping back and forth by the prophets only proves the faithfulness of God in keeping his word. Verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He's just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This verse gives the future picture of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem by Jesus only a week before his death which Zechariah was looking forward to, now we're looking back at its fulfillment. Matthew 21 and John 12 record the fulfillment of this verse. Here is the entire church age wedged into one verse, verse 9. But the prophets didn't see that. Verse 10 jumps ahead thousands of years to the second coming. The prophets could not really distinguish between the two advents. But when we read verse 10, we can plainly see its fulfillment has yet to take place. Verse 10, And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war shall be cut off. And he will speak, speak peace to the nations. And his dominion will be from sea to sea, from, river, from the river, referring to Euphrates, to the ends of the earth. When Jesus comes a second time, all war will end. 
The first time Jesus came, he came on a donkey. The second time, he will come on a horse. The first time Jesus came, he came to save. The second time he comes, he comes to judge and reign. The first time he came, they crucified him. The second time he comes, all will worship him. Philippians 2 says that in the end, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. There will never be lasting peace in this world until Christ comes to reign. Statistics even show at this present time there's at least 22 wars or conflicts going on across the globe. So apparently peace treaties aren't working. And the principle always remains that God can use evil nations to punch those who, punish those who are under judgment. That's how Israel ended up in Babylon in the first place. And God eventually used Titus to totally destroy Jerusalem in 70 AD. And who knows, even in our day, the Lord could easily use another country to judge us here in America. Goodness knows we're looking like we're heading for it. Our whole country's hatred towards God, all that is moral and good is gone. Everything that is evil is now called good, and everything that is good is now called evil. And everything is doing, everybody's doing what is right in their own eyes. But isn't that what Israel did? And they were punished for it. So what makes us so special uh, or immune to discipline? No one is. Only when Christ comes again in the second coming will real peace be realized. And not just geographically. There'll never be peace in any human heart until Christ reigns in it. And that can only happen when you come to the reality that you're a sinner in need of a Savior and accept Christ's atoning death on the cross at his first coming as payment for your sins. There's no plan B for spiritual salvation. Jesus said it in John, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Acts 4.12 For there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved. And this name is Jesus. Verses 11-13 through 13. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I have set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold, O prisoners who have hope, this very day I'm declaring that I will restore double to you, for I will bend Judah as my bow, and I will fill the bow of Ephraim. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. I will make you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will go forth like lightning, and the Lord God will blow his trumpet and will march in the storms of the winds of the south. God is talking about the sons of Zion against the sons of Greece. The Lord will one day deliver Israel out of the pit of their enemies for good. The pit refers to the waterless wells or cisterns used in ancient days to get rid of someone you didn't like. Remember in Genesis, that's exactly where Joseph's brothers threw him, but God delivered him. In these verses, the Lord is giving Israel hope. What God is saying to Israel is that there will always be hope for you, but it has to be in him. He has been always will and will ultimately be in the end their deliverer as well as ours. But God has not given up in, on Israel in any way, shape, or form. Everything he has promised to her will come to pass. Paul said it in Romans 11, Lest you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers, for a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. And in this way all Israel will be saved as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion and banish ungodliness from Jacob, 
and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Paul's quoting Isaiah 59, the elect remnant of Israel will in the end be saved. But in these verses, it's interesting in that they speak of God being like a divine warrior who will use Israel as a weapon to subdue the Gentiles. In this case, Judah and Ephraim would be a bow and arrow. The sons of Zion would be the sword, and it would be against the sons of Greece. This verse saw its initial partial fulfillment when the Jews overthrew the Greeks under a Jew named Judas Maccabee in what is known as the Maccabean Revolt. This revolt took place between 175 and 163 BC, which was really during the 400-year silence between the New and Old Testament. So it's not really in uh, either one of them. It's in between when, when the Testaments were silent, when Scripture was silent. So we do not see this in Scripture, but it's nonetheless been historically reported to have taken place. Many uninspired writings in a historical book such as Josephus and the book of Maccabees itself detail the account of this revolt or war. This is precisely where history shows the unfailing fulfillment of scripture. What brought about the revolt in the first place was a Greek tyrant named Antiochus Epiphanes. This man performed the most grotesque and blasphemous thing anyone could do to a Jew. He stopped all Jewish sacrifices in the temple. He stopped any children from being circumcised. And if they were circumcised, he slaughtered the babies. Then he stripped the temple of all the holy items, even the gold off the walls. He dis desecrated the Jewish temple by slaughtering a pig on the altar and forcing pork down the throats of the priests. But a Jew by the name of Judas Maccabee, along with other Jews, fought against the Greeks and won. This victory is still celebrated among Jewish people today and is known as the Feast of Lights, or Hanukkah. Now this Antiochus Epiphanes is a type of the real Antichrist that will come in the end. This act foreshadows, or previews, an event that will take place far into the future at the end of the tribulation when the real Antichrist does this very same thing. He comes in, he stops the sacrifices, he slaughters a pig on the altar in the Jewish temple, which will be re rebuilt by that time. This act is known as the abomination of desolation and is spoken of in Matthew 24, still yet to come. God has chosen in his own wisdom to give us types and foreshadowings of things to come through things that are and have already happened. He could have kept us entirely in the dark, but he chose to tell us, to warn us through scripture and through world history. It is by no accident nor coincidence that history has borne out everything that God's word has predicted. Just look at the hundreds of prophecies concerning the Messiah's first coming that's already come true. What would make anyone think God's joking about the second coming? The stage is already set. We, even in our own time, can see things lining up according to what the prophets and the apostles have said. But the final fulfillment of this verse will happen at the second coming of Messiah. So you see the jumping back and forth. It's enough to make you dizzy. It, but it all makes perfect sense. There was the near and the far fulfillment of prophecy, but the prophets couldn't see the difference between the two. All they saw was one. We, thousands of years later, now that we have the full revelation of Scripture, can see how history has fulfilled a lot of them. Verse 15, The Lord of hosts will defend them, and they will devour and trample on the sling stones. They will drink and be boisterous with wine, and will be filled like a sacrificial basin, drenched like the, altars of, like the corners of the altar. This verse could also refer to, refer to near and far events. The trampling over sling stones and being drenched in wine 
even to the corner of the altars, could refer to Israel's victory over the Greeks in that Maccabean, Maccabean revolt we just mentioned. Or it could also be their ultimate um, victory over all wars, which would be Armageddon in the end. John MacArthur shed some, ice on, uh, some light on verse 15 concerning the stones and the wine press. He said, this could also be looking forward thousands of years to the Battle of Armageddon, which John wrote about in Revelation 14. John wrote, and the wine press was trodden outside the city, and the blood flowed as high as the horse's bridle, 200 miles. MacArthur also writes about the metaphor of the wine or the wine press, that it doesn't always refer to wine, but that the wine press refers to the mass of bloodshed at the wrath of God. Zechariah mentions it being splashed on the corners of the altar. It was never wine that was splashed on the corners of the altar, but always blood by the priests. MacArthur goes on to say that the sling stones mentioned here could refer to weapons of war, whether it's small stones or large catapults. Israel will, either way, Israel will walk over them victoriously, both after the Maccabean revolt and more importantly, after the Battle of Armageddon, because the Lord of hosts will conquer all of her enemies for her once and for all. So you can look at it either way. Either Israel was drunk with wine in joyous victory, or she walked through the blood of God's wrath upon her enemies in victory. Verse 15 starts with the phrase, the Lord of hosts, which means captain of the army or captain of Israel. Because the Lord loves Israel, he will defend her to the end. And why is this such a surprise to everyone? What has kept this tiny country, this tiny group of people, still alive all these thousands of years while so many attempts to annihilate them has failed? Because God is protecting them. The culmination of this chapter in verse 16 and 17 give, gives God's perspective of his people Israel. Verses 16 and 17. And the Lord their God will save them in that day as the flock of his people. For they are as the stones of a crown, sparkling in his land. For what comeliness and beauty will be theirs. Grain will make the young men flourish, and new wine the virgins. This verse looks forward, again, way farther forward, to the millennial kingdom. God is described as their shepherd and the saved remnant, remnant of Israel as his flocks, which really reminds me a lot of David's beautiful words in Psalm 23. They are a sheep, and he is their shepherd. Finally, Israel, after all she has done, and that all that has been done to her, will finally rest securely in peace and prosperity. She's as beautiful in the eyes of God as jewels in a crown. This is exactly what Isaiah said in Isaiah 62.3. You, Israel, shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, and a royal crown in the hand of your God. So having said all this, Chapter 9, what principles or applications can we get out of any of this? I thought of a few. Number one, how are we to interpret the Bible when it comes to prophecy? I say literally, prophecy will be fulfilled. It's not symbolic. It's not spiritualized. The church is not Israel. Israel is not the church. The Bible says what it means and means what it says. And all that it predicts will surely come to pass. The second principle I could think of was there will be no peace on earth until Christ returns. There will be no peace in the heart of any person either until that person realizes that he or she is a sinner in need of repentance and a Savior. That Savior is Christ. 
Why do we think there's so much drug abuse, alcoholism, anxiety, depression, unrest, self-destructive behavior, suicide? It's because people are trying to fill a void that only Christ can fill. The third principle I can think of is God is sovereign over all world affairs, so we don't need to be frightened by the news we hear of impending destruction by foreign countries or what some other country is going to do. God controls their every move, whether they're aware of it or not, and I can confidently say they're not. That includes individuals or countries, whether it be Alexander the Great, Babylon, or your next-door neighbor. Proverbs 21.1 is clear about this. The king's heart is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wills. And the last principle I could think of was God can be trusted. He is faithful. He tells the truth. He's unable to lie. And if he was faithful through both biblical and world history up to now, to everyone from Adam, Noah, Abraham, David, all the prophets of Israel, why would he not be faithful to us? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your precious word. And thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit who helps us to figure these things out. We don't have it all figured out, Lord, but we just thank you that you even allow us to have a glimpse of the future and to see how everything was fulfilled in your word in the past. And it gives us hope and to know that you are faithful in all things. Lord, we ask for your blessing upon everyone who's here today and those who did not come, Lord, which ask you to be with them. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank <laughs> you.